0: Christian life was not designed that we would live it in isolation, that we would be able to do it by virtue of willpower or hard work. Just as we are saved by grace, so we are called to live by grace, to believe that the God who was gracious to bring us to himself through Christ is also gracious to enable us to walk like Christ. As we see the calling in the New Testament, God is calling us to to live like Christ in the world, to be witnesses in a dark and spiritually hostile world against the gospel, to shun temptation, to pursue holiness. All things that, humanly speaking, we are not equipped just as people in the flesh to do. We need help. We need both community of believers and the working of God's Spirit. We've already seen some of this as we're walking through the Gospel of John. We saw it in John 15, the the description Jesus gave of the vine and the branches, emphasizing the the need for dependence, that the branches must be united to the vine in such a way that they are relying on him for strength and for their well-being and humble dependence. That need for divine power was never more apparent than when you get here where we are in John chapter 16 this morning. What we've watched build in chapters 13 through 16, as Jesus has been speaking to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, is him preparing them, preparing them for what will happen both in the next 24 hours when he is arrested and crucified, and then his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven and his departure, at least in a physical sense, From them, And so if you think through some of the things that he has said to them, just we've stretched this out over weeks. This has all been over one meal time and the after time from that meal of just him conversing. So this is all within just a few hour window that what we've been looking at was actually carried out. And so he has started by saying to them, I am going away and where I am going, you cannot come. I will surely come again, and I will take you to be with me. But the thing that the disciples heard at that moment was, I am going away, and you cannot come with me at this time. He also charged them with work to do in his absence. We saw that back in chapter 14 when he says, You will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will you do. He has already said, not only am I going away, But this doesn't mean it's all over for you. You're going to carry on in ministry and service to me. Chapter 15, in that vine and the branches story, he talks about bearing fruit, that their service to Jesus will bear good and lasting fruit. And so again, the emphasis is this doesn't end here. This is just a a transition. You will carry on this work. In chapter 15, he describes it in a little more detail when he says, you are witnesses, you bear witness of me. I will go away, but you will now tell people who I am and what I have said. You will bear witness of me. And then as if that wasn't enough, all within this same evening conversation, he says, I'm leaving, I'm calling you to serve, you are to bear witness of me. And know that as you do, you will face continuous opposition. You will face hostility and persecution and hatred. And some of you will even be killed for testifying of me. If you're one of the 11 disciples at that point after Judas has gone away, I I can't imagine much that is more overwhelming at that point as, as all of this seems to be sort of coming to a head, coming to some climax in Jerusalem where he, they, they know that he has faced the greatest opposition, where he is a wanted man, and he's now outlining that all of this is to come for, for what a tax collector, a group of Galilean fishermen, and a bunch of other average guys who are now going to be sent out without Christ staying there with them as far as they could understand and to face constant spiritual and physical opposition. Humanly speaking, it had to feel impossible. It had to feel like, how, how are we supposed to do this? How, you're going away is the part that just throws the whole thing, Jesus, because how can any of this go on? We've already seen what you can do, and we've already seen the opposition you face, and now we're going to go out and be like Christ in a hostile world. That, that commission stands for you and I, And there is another level on which that is equally the the human reaction should be to recognize the impossibility of doing this in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's what we have been called to do, to go and make disciples, to, to declare Christ to people, to urge them to be made right with God. To help them to see Jesus Christ as a great savior in their need for Him, the need for forgiveness of sins, and to seek to, to ultimately to seek to convince people of truth that they have heretofore rejected. They have not embraced the gospel, and we are trying to as Paul describes it there, implore, persuade. And we're not speaking to an eager audience. We're appealing to people who are described in Scripture as dead in sin. Romans 3 says, no one seeks after God. No one fears God. They are by nature opponents of God. And it is to them that Jesus has sent us and said, go and make disciples. How do we do that? How do we who already understand well our own weaknesses and our own struggles with sin and temptation, how do we ever hope to go out into a hostile world and bear fruit that will remain good fruit for eternity. We saw part of the answer, talked about in chapter 15, the vine and the branches, where Jesus says, abide in me. He's made it clear that humble dependence is necessary for there to be any effectiveness in ministry. We are taught to humbly and obediently rest in Jesus and depend on him for everything and And show that by virtue of our prayer and and our imploring him to give strength and to give wisdom and and to give fruit through us. And so we've seen part of that, relying on Jesus to work through us. We are called to abide, to wait, to plead. But there's also equipping that he speaks of. He's addressed it already briefly in chapter 14, and this morning we're going to look in chapter 16 as Jesus touches on again what this equipping is that he has given us for ministry. If you look at uh, John 16, verse 5, Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The promise that we will see, and we've been walking through a series of promises in these chapters, is in verse 7. Let's just address, though, the the question that may have sprung to mind for you out of verse 5, because verse 5 is one of those that people who are critics of the Bible, who are skeptics, will say, look, there are inconsistencies in the Bible. After all, if you remember back in John 13, 36, after Jesus said he was going away, Peter said, where are you going? And now we have Jesus in John sixteen five saying, none of you asks me. Where are you going? So how do we reconcile that? The easiest way is to, first of all, remember, none of this is in isolation. We shouldn't pick and choose verses and sort of set them up against one another. We need to look at the whole context. And the context is this preparation of the disciples for what is to come. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, ministry, building of the church, it is preparation for them. Jesus has been speaking throughout all of this to encourage them, to give them hope to give them promises, to give them assurance of of how things will go in the future and how they are not being left as orphans. And so when you see him in verse 6, and he says, but because I've said these things to you, he's talking about all that he said previously, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He is rebuking them at that point, and he's saying, all these things that I have said to you, Intended for your benefit, intended to give you hope and wisdom and encouragement, you have heard the worst. You have essentially spun them back to say, oh, no, this is all bad. This, this all means grief. This is, this is the, the Charlie Brown sort of teacher up in the front of the classroom that you only ever hear the teacher going wah, 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 and you never hear any words. This is where the disciples are in this couple of hour stretch that they heard Jesus say, I'm going away, you can't follow me, and the world's going to be a rough place, and you're going out in it. And they heard all that, and everything else was just in that want-want category of, we don't get it. This, This can't possibly go well. If Jesus is not with us, then it can't go well. In chapter 13, when Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus does not immediately answer. He doesn't say to Peter, I'm going to heaven going to be with my father he will but he doesn't say it there and so peter persists but it's not the where question that's really sticking with peter at this point the peter's next his follow up question is lord why can't i follow you that's the heart of what's going on in the disciples mind at this point it's not so much location where jesus will be it's why can't we be with you in our scheme of things if you're the messiah and, and anything's good, good is going to happen and you're going to reign, we will be right there with you, reigning. And now you're saying we can't follow you. And That's where they're really hung up. From that point on, you walk through chapter 14, and Jesus several times in different ways does answer the where question. He says, I am going to the Father. In fact, he's explicit about that. In 1428, then he ends up rebuking the disciples when he says, you heard me say I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Essentially, he's saying, I, I told you where I'm going. I'm going to be with the Father. And if that, if that stuck with you for even a moment and you thought about that, you would be full of joy because that would be a signal to you that if I, the Son of God, am now going to the Father, that means my work is finished And it is done, and it is well. Jesus is saying to them, and he's trying to teach them, this is, I'm I'm going away. It's not like I'm moving from one town to another. I'm not moving across the, uh, up by the Sea of Galilee or across the river someplace where you can't follow me. He's trying to say to them, I am going to my Father in heaven. In other words, what that means is, I am finishing the work that the Father gave me to do. And the fact that that work is done and complete to the satisfaction of God the Father will come in that moment when I go to be with him and am seated at his right hand. That will confirm to you that indeed all that I've said as Messiah, as Son of God, is now accomplished. And instead all they are stuck on is, why can't we go with you where you go? And so John sixteen five is really Jesus rebuking them for not listening to what he said about where he was going. The, the idea that you're not asking where is, is, is hitting them for really not focusing in on the where part of what he's saying. They're just focused on the what about me part, the self-absorbed part of why can't I be with you? He's saying, just think about this. If you were listening and believing what I'm telling you, you'd be focused on the where because you'd be saying, ah, The Messiah, the Son of God, is now going to ascend to heaven to be with his Father. That means the work is done. The work of redemption is accomplished. That's the reason for rejoicing. D.A. Carson offers this way of illustrating it. Think about the son who has a weekend fishing trip planned with dad, and he has been looking forward to it, and unfortunately that week dad gets a call that he has got a a work obligation out of town. He must make a business trip, and so the fishing trip gets canceled. And the child may say, Dad, where are you going? Reality is the child doesn't really care what city or town dad's going to for that meeting. That is his way of protesting, right? As Carson writes, the the unspoken question is, why are you leaving me? There is no contradiction in what Jesus says in John 16 and what Peter asked in John 13. What Peter asked flippantly in 13, Jesus actually answered, and yet Peter still wasn't catching it. And Jesus is saying, where I am going matters. That's what you should be thinking about at this point, because I'm going to the Father. Now, the consequence, one of the consequences of his going is the promise in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So we've given you a number of promises that, you, that Jesus has outline for us in John 14 through 17 as we walk through this series. We've, we've kind of tried to highlight promises along the way. This is the promise of an advantage. It is to your advantage if I go away. The Greek word is "sumphero," compound word to bring together. It is to take different things and, and bring them together into one. pharaoh may sound, may ring to you as like symphony, our English word symphony. And if you follow it back, there is some root there comes through the, from the Greek and through the French, and we get our symphony. Which the, the idea here of symphero is when it all comes together, there's this glorious harmony. It all is wonderful and profitable, just like when all of the instruments in the symphony are playing together, it is to the advantage of the audience as they hear and witness that harmony. And so the idea here is when Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. As I go away, this will come together in a way that is for your benefit. Everything will will come together in a way that it will profit you. That is the exact opposite of what the disciples are thinking at that point. All they heard was, he's going away, and and then beginning to play out the scenarios, just like we would, of of what does this mean, he's going away? He's not going to be with us, he's not going to be teaching us, he's not going to be comforting us. They're thinking all of the, the things that would spell disaster, how could this possibly be advantage? So let's answer that. The first thing we know is he's talking about the Holy Spirit because he's already introduced the Holy Spirit in chapter 14 as the helper, which he says here again that the helper will not come to you if I don't go away, but if I go, I will send him to you. The parakletos, we talked about that word in chapter 14. Advocate, counselor, comforter, helper. It's one of those Greek words that for us to just say helper We get different connotations of what helper means. It's sort of an all-encompassing word to describe the ministries of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And so we know that this is the Holy Spirit who is coming. And so when Jesus goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will come, and, and we're told will live within us. And so we now begin to get a glimpse of what he means by this advantage. He's not so much focused on individual personal benefit here. We tend to think in individual terms. The Holy Spirit comes to me, and that's true. There's benefit in that, the Spirit working in me. But remember, again, the broader context here is is ministry. It is you going out as disciples and witnessing of Jesus Christ. And so when he speaks of advantage here, he really has in mind the idea that this, Jesus is talking about testifying to the world. And and in some way, the coming of the Spirit will be an advantage to that ministry, to that work of testifying of Jesus Christ. Jesus going away and sending His Spirit benefits us in the work we've been called to do in a hostile world. How so? A couple of things. First one is in the sense of confirmation. This one is not in this passage, but it is clear from elsewhere in the Gospel of John that when the Holy Spirit comes... It is sort of completing this transaction of verse 7. If, if I go, I will send him. If I don't go, then he will not come. The fact that the Holy Spirit comes then is saying, the work of Jesus Christ here on earth, that redemptive work has been complete. He has ascended to heaven. He's not just ascended out of our sight, but he is now before the Father, and he is sending his Spirit. John 7.39 says, For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Disciples don't get all this right at this moment, but they will. They will eventually see that the coming of the Holy Spirit to live with and in believers is a a confirmation. It is a a, a sure statement that Jesus is on high, that he is in heaven and he is at the right hand of the Father. And the evidence of that is the giving of his spirit. The second benefit is a practical one that we all gain from. It is the, the unique intimacy that you and I have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a, an intimacy that, in fact, we, we will celebrate here when we have the communion service. Part of that communion is just the idea of, of recognizing what it means to be joined to Christ. As Jesus said in John fourteen seventeen. the Spirit will be in you. While Jesus Christ was on earth during those three, three and a half years of ministry, he voluntarily subjects himself to certain limitations of time and space. Yes, he is God in flesh. He is the Son of God. He does miracles that only God can do, and he does things with time and space, such as the the fish, the feeding of the thousands, that, that certainly show the supernatural. But as for his presence with them, he has subjected himself to the limitations of time and space so that on that night, as we're reading here in John 16, Jesus is in that place in Jerusalem with those 11 men. His other followers who had already come to believe in him as Messiah, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they are not being personally ministered to by Jesus in that moment. He is not in Bethany with them at the same time that he is in Jerusalem with the disciples because he is fully man, and at that moment, he is there in Jerusalem. So the reality now of the coming of the Spirit is all of that changes. Now, Jesus dwells in us. We are, as the New Testament writers love to emphasize, we are in Christ Christ is in us. We are joined to Christ. There is a union that is intimate and deep and personal. We experience the presence of Christ so that as we worship here in Lorton, we believe Christ is present with us as he is in other believing churches in Fairfax County, across Virginia, and around the world as he is with his people and in them. Because that is what the promise was. That's why he's able to say, this is to your prophet. You should be tremendously encouraged that now as you go out into a hostile world that hates the gospel, you can know that, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. When he spoke that as they sat by that Sea of Galilee, that it still must have been hard to comprehend about, he's going away from us. How is he going to be with us, all of us, everywhere we go? Are we all just going to stay together all the time? How's this going to work? Spirit comes, and he is in believers, and that is to our advantage. Now, he's making his appeal through us. So he goes on to explain this work of the Holy Spirit in us that is gaining advantage because of the Spirit. Verse 8, he just got done saying, I will send him to you, verse 8, and when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Notice again the language here as it's been throughout the context here, which is, I will send him to you. He will guide you. He will, he'll say later, declare to you. He's, he's making the point as he teaches about the Holy Spirit that this the Spirit will come to you. The Holy Spirit will not simply operate in a vacuum as this sort of force that's out there. He is a person who will come and dwell in you. We are the vehicles that he works through. It's not to say that the Spirit can't work apart from us and that he can't convict apart from the body of Christ. He can, but ordinarily his work is through Believers being in us. And so verse 8 specifies that one of the things the Spirit does in working through us is convicts the world. He convicts unbelievers. So this is a ministry that should be significant to us, because he's telling the disciples, and by application to us, this is something the Spirit will do through you. To convict is to shine a light. It's to expose, to take what's darkness and put light on it. And so he's saying that the Holy Spirit, who I'm sending to you, will now convict, expose the guilt of the unbelieving world. So that means in some way, we are instruments through which the Spirit does that. Now, again... Obviously, the Holy Spirit can deal directly with a person's conscience with or without the testimony of a believer nearby. There are plenty of stories of people who came across the Bible, read it, were convicted by the Spirit, and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. I, I would contend that Somebody probably got that Bible to where that unbeliever actually picked it up and read it, so God still used the instrumentation of the body of Christ in some way. But yes, the Spirit can do that. Ordinarily, though, and quite often, the Holy Spirit, what He is doing is accomplishing a work of conviction through believers. Again, just remember, since, since chapter 14 and that statement about greater works than I've done, you will do... This is over and over again. It is about the ministry of believers, that, that greater works part than when we looked at it in 14. You remember, it's, it's focused not on, on doing more miracles that are somehow bigger, that you're going to feed more people than Jesus fed. The, the greater works that the Spirit will do is the spread of the gospel and bringing people into the kingdom. That is the greatest of works the Spirit can do, is saving those who are dead in sin and bringing them to life. And he says to the disciples, greater works... And these will you do. You will see people turning to me, and there will be fruit born. And so we need the Holy Spirit working through us to do that. And part of doing that is convicting the world. The Holy Spirit exposes the sin of unbelievers, and He often does so through you and I. He has come into your life to make you an instrument someone who would be an instrument of that conviction to the unbelieving world. So when you pray for God to lead a person to repentance, expect that God will also use you in that work to help convict sinners who need Christ. So let's think about this conviction and and what it is. He he describes three elements of this conviction. First in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. First aspect of this conviction is to expose unbelief. It is to make unbelievers aware that because they are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, they are guilty. It is to show them their lack of faith in Christ alone. They must see that. They must recognize that there is no salvation apart from faith in Christ alone. Throughout this whole discourse... We have been reminded that the Holy Spirit remembers. Chapter 14 helps us remember what Jesus said, 1426. Bears witness of Jesus, 1526. Takes that which belongs to Jesus and declares it to the disciples, 1614. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He is making Jesus the focal point. He is bringing Jesus to the forefront so that, so that all of humanity ultimately divides around its response to Jesus Christ. You either by faith, Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you trust in Jesus, and you respond to his gospel with faith and repentance, or you are lost. And in that case, the Holy Spirit is striving to convict, to expose the world's unbelief, to help them to see you need Jesus. You're not believing in Jesus, and you're lost apart from that. And so the Spirit works through us to confront unbelievers about that, that they cannot escape guilt. When you've shared the gospel with someone or you've talked to someone about your testimony and your faith in Jesus Christ and and belief in him as Savior, have you heard people ever respond with varying degrees of defenses as to why they're okay even though they don't necessarily believe in Jesus like you do and they'll give you some response of well that's that's great I'm glad that you believe in Jesus I believe in such and such and we all have to believe in something spiritual and so it's okay or or I've I've done some really good things or I go to church once in a while or I've never killed anybody there's always the classic you know I, I I'm I'm okay in that way There is within man that that sort of inner compulsion to prove that I'm okay. It's that sinful way of somehow saying, I don't don't need that Savior you're talking about because I've done this, or I am that, or I believe whatever. In biblical terms, the the word for being right before God is righteous. Righteous you have a right standing before God. You have been made so that you can now stand before God and declared not guilty. Even as a sinner, you can have that guilt removed because it's been put on Jesus and be declared righteous. There are only two ways that scripture describes to be right to be righteous before God. One is be perfect. Keep the law in its entirety, never have a thought deed, word, action of any kind that is sinful. Be perfect, obey God's law from the beginning. I think we all agree, failed, right? We all fall short on that. So that method is out. So scripture says the only other way is you must believe in the one who is perfect in righteousness, who has fulfilled the law, who has never sinned, whose righteousness is complete. You must receive his righteousness believing in him, that he died in your place and that he rose again. And then you will have righteousness with which you can stand before God. It is the righteousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit, it says in verse 10, then convicts unbelievers because they lack righteousness. It shows that person that, no, I know you believe this or believe that, but you can't be right before God apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, And verse 10 then goes on to say, it seems odd to us why he says this. He's convicting the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What's the connection there? He's saying that heaven is crucial, Christ being in heaven is crucial to convicting the world of unrighteousness. The point is this, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead and brings him now to be at the right hand of the Father is God the Father's declaration that the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. It is the raising of Jesus from the dead and the fact that Jesus can now go to the Father and, and, and be with the Father is the statement by the Father that He has accepted the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so the resurrection is essential to the gospel, because it is the declaration that the death on the cross was sufficient because it was done by a sinless Savior. And it is it proves his his resurrection and ascension, proves our need for a righteousness that we can stand before God with, something that he will accept. And he has already shown us, by Jesus being in heaven, that I have accepted this as perfect righteousness. Don't try to bring your own, bring Christ's. Trust in Christ, because that's the only hope. In fact, verse 10 says, you will see me no longer. He's he's stressed that already. But again, what he's saying is in the absence of himself being there, it is all the more imperative that his followers preach his resurrection and exaltation into heaven. It is important that our gospel hone in as well, not only on the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. When he had finished his work, Hebrews tells us, he sat down the right hand of God, because it was complete. Finally, verse 11 says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is not, at at, at first thought, when we see judgment in Scripture, we tend to think of God's judgment. I don't think that's really the case here. I think the Holy Spirit, when it says he is convicting the world of judgment, because the the, the ruler of this world is judged, I I think what he's doing is he's making the connection to it is the world's flawed judgment sinful way of judging spiritual things. The conviction that the Holy Spirit carries through us is to expose the awful judgment that the world makes when it comes to spiritual things, when it tries to wrestle with death and the afterlife. Why Why does the world make judgments about spiritual truths that are wrong and foolish? Because, he says, verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged because they they are under the ruler of this world. And the ruler of this world traffics in lies and deception. And so he's described in this passage conviction of the world's sin of unbelief, conviction of the world's lack of righteousness, and now it's conviction of the world's way of judging spiritual things that is dead wrong. They miss it. Because there is a ruler of this world who is giving them their ideas about God and the afterlife. As lost people consider spiritual things, they are ultimately under the sway of the ruler of this world. And, and his work is lies. Jesus said that in John eight forty four. The devil is a liar and the father of lies. His chief tactics are lies and deceptions. And so that's why when you talk to an unbeliever sometimes, they'll say, Nah, I don't really believe in hell. I... I'm not for that. I believe everyone ultimately gets to God except for the really, really bad people. Or I believe we reincarnate, we come back around and we try again. Or I believe, and you fill in the blank with any of the assortment of ways that people will respond, and you think to yourself, How do they they think this? Because they think this because they are under the ruler of this world. And and the point of what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit is in you to convict you and to help expose in that person. You're falling for a lie. That's not true. That's not God's design. That's not what he has done. The Spirit of God is at work in us to bring the truth of Jesus Christ to bear on the world. The last few verses in this section, I think, help us then apply all this. Look at verse 12, and we'll just move quickly through this one section here. I still have many things to say to you, speaking now directly to the disciples. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So we're talking in the moment to the 11. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This this passage is really an enlargement on the one verse we read back in chapter 14, verse 26, when he said, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So here in chapter 16, in these final moments of his time with the disciples, he is saying, quite simply, I have much more to teach you. There is an abundance more of spiritual truth that I want to teach you, but I also understand at this point that you are not in a real teachable mood right at this point. This was not the teachable moment for the 11 disciples. This is the moment of confusion and grief and sorrow, as Jesus has already described. And so Jesus says, I've got a lot more. You cannot bear it now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you. This is a very specific promise as he's saying to the disciples, now I have more to say, but I can't do it because you can't bear it now. He's now addressing those 11 who will ultimately become apostles, who will, after the ascension of Christ, go out and begin to plant the church of Jesus Christ in local churches. And Jesus will build the earliest local churches through the preaching and teaching of these men who are the witnesses, who have seen Christ, and who will go forth from there. And he's assuring them that the Spirit will teach you. The Spirit will bring things to mind for you. In this moment, when right now you are self-absorbed in grief and can't even imagine how you go on from here, much less go out and preach, I'm telling you, when that time comes, my Spirit will be in you, and he will teach you. And not only will he bring to mind things that I have said, but he will continue to teach you. And so what he's, what he's really doing is laying the foundation for how we have the New Testament. This is Jesus saying to these disciples, soon to be apostles, that the Spirit will bring things to you and will deliver truth, revelation from me to you. Our 27 books of the New Testament come about because of this promise. 2 Peter 1.21 describes our receiving of God's word when it says, men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit worked through guys like John and Peter and Paul through these apostles. He taught them. He brought the truth to mind, Jesus speaking to them through his Spirit, so that what they write then becomes the inspired word of God so that we read it now as revelation from him given to us in Scripture. We have the Gospel of John because of this promise, that Jesus would send his Spirit to guide John, to remember the things he had said, and to teach him even more. So we have 1 John, 2 John, Third John, Revelation, because the Spirit comes to John and says, from Jesus, this is what you will write down. This is the revelation. This is now what is to be spread and given to the churches. So there's a specific statement here, speaking of now and to the disciples. But by application, I think this this certainly helps us in that when we talk about that prior ministry of conviction, proclaiming Jesus to the world and convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and we go, "How, how does that look? That looks something like what he's describing here in that it is Jesus taking his word his truth, and ministering it through us. And so our ministry relies on his word. That's why we are Grace Bible Church, because we believe that, that God has given us truth through Scripture, and we are to proclaim that truth, that if he is going to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment, it won't be because we're so eloquent at this and we've come up with some new idea to explain. It will be because we take people back to the powerful truth of God's word. And that's what the Spirit now uses and helps us and brings to mind in us. So it is the truth of God's Word that teaches us the gospel and calls us to life. It is the Word of God that teaches us about the righteousness of Christ and our desperate need for it. It is the truth of the Word of God that exposes Satan's lies and and brings us the truth. As we meditate on his truth, we are then equipped by his Spirit to encounter an unbelieving world and expose their sin and their righteousness and their judgment as we can bring Scripture to bear in conversations so that they know this isn't just their neighbor Doug's ideas about spiritual things, which seem the same as their ideas about spiritual things. They can know that we believe that this is where truth lies. And and this is what the Spirit will use to convict. God guides us to glorify him by proclaiming his truth. That's why, whether we're making disciples by declaring the gospel or building up disciples by speaking truth, we're relying on God's word, on His wisdom. So, let me just give you, real quickly, just as we close, I, I, I think three, three brief applications to keep in mind. How, how, do we, how do we do this conviction stuff? This is not when we hear conviction and exposing guilt and shining a light on sin. It appeals to to some of our worst instincts, which is to just call the culture horrible and to to condemn the culture and to point a finger at unbelievers and and, and just want them to see how terrible the choices are that they are making. That's not what this is calling us to. This is word-based, spirit-led ministry of making disciples. The work of conviction, I would say to you, first demands that we be students of God's truth if we believe that the authority that the Spirit will use to convict lies in the words of Scripture, then we are foolish if we don't spend time in Scripture if we don't meditate on God's truth, so that when conversations come, we can go back to Scripture. We need to be growing God's truth because that's the authority that confronts Satan's lies. That's where the power of the words of Jesus Christ stand, and we need to be able to know Scripture and speak Scripture. Secondly, I would suggest to you we need to live humbly. The fact that the Holy Spirit works through us to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment does not speak to our great wisdom and virtue. it speaks to the grace of God to work through us. Who are we to expose sin and righteousness and unrighteousness and judge and faulty judgment? Who are we? We're redeemed by Christ and used by him. That, that's all that we have to rely on at that point. And so my encouragement to you would be that we recognize that it is God working through us and God bringing conviction through us, God bringing grace. We are vessels. We first humbly must submit to the word and to its conviction. It's really hard to be clear about proclaiming the gospel in a convicting way if we are not leaving our own lives open to the conviction of God's Spirit for sinful patterns and angry patterns or whatever it is that we are struggling with. And and so the Spirit needs to be working in us first. The goal is not for me to go around and blast unbelievers that they're all wrong and I'm some all-wise judge. On the contrary, what I want them to know is, yes, the Word of God says, without Christ yes, you are lost, but I've got a a wonderful Savior that I want to tell you about who has come to answer your sin of unbelief, who has come to give you righteousness, who has come to, to remove all the lies and bring you into truth. So we need to be humble about seeing our own foolishness and rebellion and seeing that God saved us through that and now wanting to share what he's done with others. Last thing I would say to you is, love holiness. Live humbly, love holiness. There is nothing that damages conviction than our own wallowing in sin. If, If the sense of the neighbor is that you lie, cheat, and steal pretty much like they do, maybe on a slightly different scale or about different things. If the coworker sees that you're willing to lie to get the promotion or the, the neighbor sees that that you lust in some way and don't think anything of that lust or whatever it is, that you, you are angry and volatile in your reaction to your children when things go wrong, it is very hard to present the truth of God's Word in a convicting way when we are that way about our own lives. And so we are called holiness. And so the, the first place the Spirit and the Word should be having its effect is on our own lives, our own desires and thoughts and affections and actions so that He is convicting us when we struggle with anxiety, when we struggle with anger, when we struggle with being deceiving. Those are the areas the Spirit needs to be working in us through His Word so that we might then bear good fruit of righteousness. As God works his conviction through us, he then, as he describes here, works it through to others. And so we should love holiness, declaring truth, not with the desire to ever mock unbelievers, but with the hope that we would show them a glorious Savior who has come and given his life as a ransom and give to them that hope, the sweet righteousness of our Savior Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I... Stand just on behalf of my brothers and sisters who are trusting in you to thank you for accomplishing in your death and resurrection a work of redemption that we were utterly, futilely hopeless in trying to ever achieve on our own. Thank you for doing a work in saving people that would display your grace, your strength your forgiveness. Help us this week as we minister to a hostile world, to people who are dead in sin. Help us to live out the truths of Scripture by the Holy Spirit's enabling to speak your truth into people's lives. Not to condemn, but to allow your spirit to expose their sin and to lead them to Christ, to show them the glories of A Savior and the righteousness that He offers. Father, if there's anyone this morning who is listening that is not, has one of those many reasons of why they've not trusted in Christ, I pray that today would be the day you would break down those defenses, that you would bring them to the place of no longer trying to rely on self and one's own attempts at righteousness, but that today would be the day when you would cause them to cry out to Jesus to believe that his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven made it clear that he has achieved a perfect righteousness that he will give to those who turn to him in faith and repentance. Jesus, we pray these things in your great name and for your glory. Amen.